0: So, good morning, beloved. Good morning. Good morning. Mute, uh, mute now, so, hi Dory. I'm going to ask hi. everyone if they would uh, mute their Zooms. Thank you so much. And call us to order. It is Sunday morning, and I'm going to pull up my screen share here. It is Sunday morning, December sixth, and we have the privilege of uh, returning back to our study in Romans eight. And I'm going to pray for us and then we'll look at God's precious word. Lord, we are grateful this morning to arise and call you our Father and to know your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who reveals you as full of grace and truth. You've come to tabernacle among us, Lord Jesus. Emmanuel, friend, shepherd, king, savior, redeemer, lover of our souls. And you who are the word made flesh, you've given us your word and you've sent your spirit that by his work, his illumining power, we may understand the word of truth. And we pray this morning it would do its good work in our hearts, transforming our minds, conforming us to the image of Jesus, challenging and changing uh, uh, whatever flawed assumptions we have in our thinking, our worldview, thank you. And we bless you for the fellowship we have, though not in person, nonetheless, uh, through the blessing of this technology. So take and use your word for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We are going to spend some amount of time, beloved, looking at Romans 8, 28 to 39. You could call this the Mount Everest of assurance. So if if there are sort of mountain peaks in God's revelation, clearly the book of Romans as Paul's uh, thorough exposition of the gospel would be one of those highest peaks. And chapter 8 in Romans is is the pinnacle. I've entitled this, and of course, why is that necessary? Because Paul is addressing the subject of suffering. That's what we've looked at for the last couple weeks. Those who are suffering need assurance that they're gonna make it to the end, that their suffering has meaning, that it has purpose, that someone greater than their tormentors and persecutors is in control. And that's, that's essentially what's happening uh, in these wonderful, wonderful, breathtaking verses. It's gonna take some time to work through this. I've called this the father's commitment to his son's family. I framed it that way because Scripture comes to us as radically God-centered. Scripture is not about us. It's about what God is doing. And earth history, the, 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 the history of redemption, is ultimately about the Father giving his beloved son a family to enjoy forever. And earth history is how that's getting worked out in two time frames. The Old Testament, the first dispensation of that. The New Testament, the second dispensation. We can use that word. It just seems a a time frame. God working differently in those two times. At any rate, this is what your personal history is and all of her history is. Jesus Christ coming to earn for himself a family according to his father's plan, obeying his father uh, righteously, uh, uh, keeping the law for us passively dying that uh, substitutionary death our sins deserve. So what is everything about? It's the father's commitment to a son's family. And that's the basis of your assurance. God will do what he's promised his son. Please mute. Please mute everybody. Um, God will do what he's promised his son. And you're, you are part of that promise if you have faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's how I've described it. Paul puts uh, suffering in perspective in these following verses by peeling back the veil, shrouding our view of how God is working his purposes on earth through his unseen rule. See, what we see is, is what's happening before our eyes, but there's more going on behind the veil. God is working purposes. God in the unseen world is doing things. They're showing up in uh, in our lives. And sometimes it's hard to make sense of it. Well, uh, sometimes hard to make sense of it, particularly when we're suffering and in trials. So what Paul does here, beginning in verse 28, is he says, hey, I want you to have unbridled assurance. I want your heart to be overflowing with confidence that God is for you. He's going to fulfill his purpose. To his son, giving you to his son to the end. So Paul, in, in a sense, peels back the veil of what's happening in, in as we see reality. And he does that so that we are assured God has his purposes. God's in control. God is good. And he's committed to giving you to his son. So let me read these verses in 28 through 30. And then I'm going to just uh, quickly go through a little outline of what's going on in these verses. Here's what he says we know, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're going to look at these verses in some detail. Let me get, just give you a little bit of an overview of these. F- the first thing we're going to look at is the doctrine of providence. Incidentally, all of these little things begin with P, just for what it's worth. We're going to look at the doctrine of providence. We know that uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are according to his purpose. And that raises one question, well, what purpose Uh, Does God calling them to? That's answered down here under predestination, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the first one among many brethren. That answers what question? It answers the question how does that come to pass? That comes to pass. under, uh, in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. I'm labeling on that perseverance because you notice that glorified is in the past tense. Well, well we know that glory is future, but because God began a process, it when God begins something, it's as good as done. That's the strength in which Paul can uh, speak of glorified in the past tense. And this is the doctrine of uh, perseverance. God will preserve those that he's calling to himself. So once you're in Christ, there's a type of glory that's already been lavished upon you. But once you're in Christ, it's as good as done. So we're going to look at the of Salutis based on that verse. And then we're going to see how in the process of us getting to glory, God provides for us. What can we say to these things? Paul answers, asks about five questions that he then answers himself. And so we see God's provision there in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered up for us all. How will they not also freely with him give us all things? Again, a God-focused assurance that all things necessary for salvation, he will supply. Then we're going to look at 33 and 34. I'm calling propitiation. I'll explain that later. And finally, this, uh, this fireworks of assurance at the end of the chapter, 35, to 39, I'm just calling protection. God is the one committed to bringing you to himself. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you could put it this way. Paul has taken us from a chapter uh, 8 verse 1, no condemnation to the end of the chapter, no separation. There's your assurance right there. So let's, let's go back. I'm, we're going to go back now. We're going to tease out 28 to 30. My, I don't know how long it's going to take us, but What's the rush, right? So let's look at the doctrine of providence. And we know. Notice that the word, and, shows that Paul's thinking is continuing. What does he said in verse 27? He said that the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Incidentally. Eight times in the book of Romans, Paul uses the phrase saints. We are all saints. Christians are saints. We're set apart. We're holy. It's that wonderful doctrine of definitive sanctification. The moment you are in union with Jesus Christ by faith... You have new relationships to everything. So we're all saints and the reason he's telling us about the Spirit interceding for us is because when we're suffering sometimes we don't know how to pray. So he gives us this assurance that the Spirit is interceding for us according to the will of God which sort of raises the question, oh tell me more about the will of God. And that's what he starts in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose this is what you could call the uh, new testament version of genesis 50:20 which is that dramatic incident where Joseph finally confronts his brothers in Egypt for having ditched him all those years earlier. They don't really know who he is until he unveils himself. And they're shaking in their boots like, is Joseph going to take us out to the woodshed and give us a thrashing? And what's Joseph's perspective on their evil? They're they're deserting him uh, into the hands of those Ishmaelites. His perspective is this. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And so you see in the doctrine of providence this tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. God is absolutely in control of everything, working all things according to his purpose, as we'll see in a second. But that does not mean that the actions of human beings are not significant. And so Joseph's perspective is, you, my brothers, what you meant for evil, and it was evil, It was terrible what they did. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God can work, God works in all things for good. So I, I call Romans 8.28 the New Testament version of Genesis 50.20. What is providence? It's a wonderful word. It's Latin. It comes from pro, before, and video, to see. The idea is God sees beforehand all that happens because he's willed it, yet without being the author of sin. I'm going to read for a second uh, from the uh, Westminster Confession, Chapter 5. But I want to illustrate this for you. You may have heard me use this illustration before at Wallace. Think of Providence this way. When, when we had our kids were little with us at the beach, we, uh, we made a big deal about sand, finding sand dollars. So along the ocean's edge, you have lots of rocks, you have pieces of shell that are all split up, but finding a whole sand dollar was really a big thing. Now, kids wouldn't know any difference, but if we make a big deal out of it, then they buy into that. Finding a whole sand dollar is a big thing. So we would take our little ones by the hand, and I'd walk along the ocean edge. I'm six foot two, my little one's just a couple feet off the ground, and we're looking for sand dollars having the vantage point of an adult and much taller, I would look ahead, and if I saw a sand dollar, I would make sure I would take my child by the hand and direct them right to it so they had the joy of discovering it. Oh, look, Mikey, you found that sand dollar. Good for you. Well, that was a provideo. I saw beforehand, I directed my son to that, to give him the pleasure of discovering that for himself. God is directing and controlling all things. So let me read what our forefathers in the faith, the Westminster divines. You, you know about the Westminster Assembly, it was called by Parliament in London, 1643-1648. to 1648. These were pastors and theologians, they met in, uh, for different time periods. They, they uh, produced what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the larger and shorter catechisms, and these are the doctrinal standards of our denomination. Also, the OPC, the uh, the EPC, and actually some Reformed Baptist denominations. They just took their. Um, they, did you know that there's a thing called the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is essentially the Westminster Confession with a razor blade taken to a, a couple things like on baptism. So. If you're a Baptist, your roots are distinctly reformed, the Westminster Confession. Just a little sidebar for you. At any rate, these were the the top notch, all-star team theologians and pastors in that time. What they produced is breathtakingly comprehensive, thorough, and deeply biblical. Chapter 5 of the Confession is on Providence. I won't go over all of it, but the first paragraph sort of captures the heart of this. And every one of their phrases in the Confession has a scripture proof or more annexed to it. So this is chapter 5 of Providence. God, the the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. God is in control. He's God. Nothing thwarts his purposes. Nothing thwarts his will. Even though to us it can look that way, it can look that way. It can feel that way. What are you doing, God? We have many psalms where godly men are crying out, what's going on? That's because we see providence being worked out before our eyes in technicolor. But again, what's happening in these verses? Paul is peeling back the veil, showing you no, there is a God completely in control, working all things together for good if you are called according to his purpose. So I have this little advice here for you. We read God's providences backwards. In other words, he doesn't ask us to speculate about what's ahead. Not that planning's wrong. Not that thinking about your future is wrong. Nothing's wrong with that. But God doesn't ask us to guess about his providences. His providences are read like Hebrew letters, looking backwards. So if it happened, God willed it. If it happened, God willed it. Did God will COVID-19? If it happened, he willed it. That doesn't mean human beings aren't responsible for that. That doesn't mean there might not be uh, human culpability and uh, malice involved in all of this. But nonetheless, if something happened, it was in his providence because he is in control of everything. So we're not asked to speculate about his future workings beyond what he's explicitly told us in his word. We live looking ahead by promises. We can look back with assurance that what God has willed has come to pass. And you know, sometimes he doesn't always tell us the meaning of those things. We will know one day the meaning of all things when we stand before his face and we see clearly and we know all things. What we need to know in order to live godly lives, he's told us. And that's why we believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God. And that's why the Westminster Confession begins with the chapter on the Word of God. All things necessary for life and godliness are either expressly written in Scripture or by good and necessary inference can be deduced from Scripture. So we have the Word of God is completely sufficient to live before Him in godliness and holiness. John Newton, you all know the name John Newton, wrote this. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. So if he sends me a traffic jam, must be necessary. Do I believe that? Not in the moment. (laughs) But God works together in all things. Sickness, traffic jams. The difficulties our children are having. The difficulties I'm having at work. He works together in all things for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. What's Paul been talking about before this? Suffering. Okay, so let's do this. Let's take an excursus. Then, if you'll go to page three in your handout, I'm taking you down an excursus called the sovereignty of God, since this is the obvious attribute of God that stands behind his providence, I want to give you a little bit of teaching on the sovereignty of God with this opening paragraph. Historians describe the reformers, those are the men who wrote the Westminster Confession and many others like them, Luther and many following him. This is why we call ourselves a reformed church. We stand in the tradition on, on the shoulders of theologians whose theology, well, here it is. Uh, reformers as theologians were intoxicated with the majesty of God. They themselves described their work as merely repeating the message of the martyrs, that is, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They were just seeking to be biblical. The reformers had deeply theocentric theology. They started with God, they ended with God, never moved away from a profoundly God-glorifying view of all things. They would say that is because they find the Bible to be that way. God reveals himself as absolutely in control of everything. He has no rivals, his throne is never threatened, he alone rules the universe, directs all its affairs, is the Most High God, the Almighty, who does whatsoever he pleases, can be thwarted by no person or thing, and accomplishes all that he wills to do, being resisted by nothing. He's sovereign. We're supposed to find comfort in that. Uh, Not every Bible-believing Christian believes that. I think I'm going, to, I'm going to try to show you in the next three pages of this handout that, that it's just irrefutably true. Some of you may be familiar with the, uh, the author A.W. Pink. He wrote a book called The Sovereignty of God. It's been used by God to convince many a person of the sovereignty of God. Here's how he defines it. He says, the sovereignty of the God of scripture is absolute, irresistible, infinite. When we say that God is sovereign, we affirm his right to govern the universe, which he has made for his own glory, just as he pleases. We affirm that his right is the right of the potter over the clay. That is, that he may mold that clay into whatsoever form he chooses, fashioning out of the same lump one vessel vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. He's quoting right there out of Romans 9. We affirm that God is under no obligation to give an account of his matters to any. Sovereignty characterizes the whole being of God. He's sovereign in all his attributes. He's sovereign in the exercise of his power. His power is exercised as he wills, when he wills, where he wills. This fact is evidenced on every page of scripture. I think that's a very uh, fair, true statement It comports with scripture. So if you're not familiar with the multitude of ways the Bible asserts God's sovereignty, consider the following. And all I've done here is I've taken my Bible, I've opened it, and I've done a flyover. And I've I've looked at uh, many of the different verses and many of the different categories that God declares his sovereignty over. Turns out it's everything, (laughs) unsurprising. So for example, God is sovereign over all things. Our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. He promises, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now look how that's personal for you in Philippians 2.13. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that wonderful? You belong to the Lord, and your life will read down to his glory because he's in it willing and working for his good pleasure. We should rest in that. We should relish that. We should give thanks for that. We should seek him all the more and say, what is it you want me to do? How can I bring glory to your name? That question's going to be answered depending on the gifts and calling God has uh, lavished upon you in His sovereign purpose. His sovereignty rules over all. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Uh, Isaiah 14, for the Lord have hosts his plan. Who can frustrate it? What's the answer? Nobody, even though to our human eyes, as we look at life in technicolor, it looks like, well, think about Paul. Remember, Paul wanted to go evangelize a certain area, and he says Satan thwarted him. Okay, who was sovereign there, God or Satan? God. C.S. Lewis reminds us that the devil is God's devil. The devil can do nothing, and he does awful things, nefarious things. He thwarted God from going... To, Ultimately, God's purpose was being worked out. The devil will pay handsomely for that. He'll be punished for that. But nonetheless, nothing can frustrate God's plans. We are to rest in that, find uh, consolation and comfort in that. God is sovereign over all authority. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. And based on that authority, what are we to do? Go make disciples of all nations. Romans 13, Paul writes, there's no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. So on the strength of that, we pray for those who are in authority over us. We ask God to give us rulers who will love him, honor him, uphold his righteous laws, fear him, do nothing less than that. We want everyone in authority from the Supreme Court to both houses of Congress the president, his cabinet, we want our our local authorities, we want them all to know they were put in place by God. They'll answer to God for what they do and they're to fear God in what they do. Um, All creation, God's sovereign over all creation. You created all things by your will. They were created and have their being. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose. Um, And actually that verse finishes, even the wicked for the day of judgment. So we see some mystery there. That would be considered a hard saying. Oh, wait a minute. You made the wicked for the day of judgment. Well, we're going to see God is sovereign in salvation. Now, let's stop and affirm this. If you see that verse and you're not saved and you want to be saved and you don't want to be, you don't want to face the judgment of God, call on the name of the Lord right now with assurance he will save you. Because uh, right after... Paul in Romans 9 assures us of the absolute sovereignty of God and salvation. In Romans 10 he says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is the free offer of the gospel for whoever will call on the name of the Lord. So if you want to be saved and you're not sure you are saved, call on Jesus' name right now with assurance. He will save you. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll refresh you. He will save all who call on his name. Daniel 4 Uh, Isn't this Nebuchadnezzar confessing this? He does according to his will and the hosts of heaven are among the inhabitants of the earth. A pagan confessing the sovereignty of God. Why shouldn't we? God is sovereign over the animals. He formed them at creation. He directed them into the ark. He used them in the plagues. He provided the quail. He spoke through Balaam's donkey, shut the mouths of lions. Use ravens to feed Elisha, sent a great fish to swallow Jonah, directed the great fish to deposit Jonah at a specific place on the shore, and put a coin in, in a fish's mouth for Peter. Look, God's sovereign over the animals, right? Okay. He's sovereign over the weather. He's sovereign over all reality. Look at Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance of His glory, Jesus Christ, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is keeping this whole world intact by the word of his power. God's sovereign over childbearing. This is a hard thing for uh, uh, some who are barren and wanting to get pregnant and not being able to get pregnant, it's a very hard thing. But the ultimate no, to pray to God should he choose to open the womb, he has the power to do that. He's sovereign in childbearing sovereign over Human plans, the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. Look at Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his way. The Lord directs his steps. So we plan. It's okay to think about your future. It's okay to to make plans. We do so confident that as we submit those plans to God, we want His will to be performed. He will direct our steps. So we're to be thoughtful, wise planners, confident God's in control. So, in other words, you don't put your head on the pillow and say, "I'm going to wait, Lord, for You to show me what to do tomorrow." No, you get up and you live before the Lord, and you do what He's called you to do. You go to work. You love people. You tend the garden. You clean the house. You change the diapers. Whatever God's set before you to do, confident He's sovereign over those things. Even uh, Deuteronomy eight eighteen. As as Moses is preparing Israel to come into the Promised Land, they're going to inherit all these material riches: cities you didn't build, gardens, vineyards. They're going to inherit all this wealth. It's a picture of the Gospel. We get all of the wealth that belongs to Jesus by being united to Jesus by uh, by faith. And uh, Moses reminds the Israelites, "It is He who's given you the power to make wealth. If you're wealthy, don't don't don't." Uh, Yes, you worked hard. Yes, God may have given you genius to make wealth. Ultimately, those things come from God. How about the end of Proverbs 16? The lot is cast into the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. Even the outcome of dice is under the sovereign hand of God. God is sovereign over his enemies. God is sovereign even over sin, as we saw in Genesis 50:20 and our verse before, Romans 8:28. God is sovereign over the governments of the earth. God is sovereign in history. Now this is Paul preaching to pagans. Preaching to pagans. They don't have a biblical worldview. And he tells them, I think this is at Lystra in Acts 14, In generations, God permitted the nations to go their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. And that witness is how he gave them food and good things to enjoy. We'll see more about that from Psalm 145 in in the service today. And then preaching on Mars Hill to, to the philosophers of Athens. He reminds them God is sovereign over human history. And the ultimate act in human history to which everything will be judged is he's fixed today in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history that forms the foundation for final judgment. If you are not sure that you're a Christian, you struggle with the historicity of the Christian faith, there are wonderful resources to show you the facticity, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Let us know if we can point you to those resources. God's sovereign at the incarnation. When was Jesus born? In the fullness of time. God sent forth a son born of a woman born under the law. Now here, we talked earlier that in the doctrine of providence, we affirm two things that are very difficult for us human beings to grasp in our mind. And that is human beings are absolutely responsible for what they do. But what they do is absolutely under the sovereign hand of God. God wills whatsoever things come to pass without himself being the author of evil. No evil comes from God. So when Peter's preaching in the early chapters of Acts, he, when he's, pre- he's preaching Christ and always preaching the resurrection, he says in Acts 2, this man, Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. He is laying blame at the feet of his countrymen. They should not have deserted Jesus. He'd done nothing wrong. It was the most heinous act of injustice in the history of the world. And they were responsible for that. It was sin. Of course, we also nailed Jesus to the cross. It's a different subject for our sins, took Jesus to the cross. So they're no less culpable, as it were, than we are. He had to die for us to make us right with God. But notice that uh, Peter is saying, what you did was evil, But you delivered them up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God was absolutely sovereign every second through Jesus' passion. And yet the people that did it were guilty of heinous crimes. Same thing in Acts 4. They did, this is the prayer, the apostles, they're praying to God. They did, the same people that that were responsible for deserting Jesus to, to the Romans to crucify him, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So their perspective on this awful thing was God was sovereign, God willed this, yet the people that did it were responsible. I think in his book, J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which is an excellent little introductory essay into, into this, uh, this tension here. He, he uses a technical term. He, I think he calls it an antimony, an antimony, which is, I'd never heard the word before seeing that, but it, th- those are two things, two facts that look to us that look irreconcilable in our thinking. Human beings are absolutely responsible for what they do. They do so according to the predetermined plan of God. Nonetheless, the Bible asserts both. We rest in both because the Bible says they're both true. God's sovereign at salvation. Uh, when, uh, when, when, uh, When the apostles are reflecting on people being converted, it happens when the Gentiles will be converted through Cornelius, meaning Peter, and a little bit later in Acts, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Well, how many believed? Everyone who was appointed. Who did the appointing? God. So sometimes in the Bible, you see salvation observed from a human point of view. Look, those people repented and believed, and they were saved. That's looking at salvation from the point of view of what they did. Sometimes the apostles peel back the veil and look at what was happening in terms of what God was doing. And in this case, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. The Bible is very fluid in the way it looks at these things. Um, If there's any doubt about God's sovereignty and salvation, Hop into Romans 9, and if you look at it carefully, you can't get out of Romans 9 without believing God's absolutely Maybe sovereign. God's absolutely sovereign. Hello. Um, Romans nine sixteen. it, that is, the salvation of sinners, does not uh, therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Uh, Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. 1 Peter 2, 8, those who stumbled over Christ Peter says, and to this doom they were appointed. Let me just say, if you're fearful, that might be you. Call on the name of the Lord with complete assurance. He will save you. These verses are not given to make you feel consigned to hell because you can't find yourself believing. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you faith in Jesus, and he will. Jesus will save everyone who calls on his name. And so we want to then stress the mystery of God's sovereignty. Uh, Moses writes, the secret things belong to the Lord. That's why we're not asked to speculate when it comes to the doctrine of election. uh, Who's in and who's out. Well, We'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. So what do we do with that verse? What God has revealed to us, we seize upon. We relish, we believe, we trust, we think about, we probe. What he hasn't revealed, we believe. We don't need to know that. Make sure you're muted, everybody. Um, Romans 11, how unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. So that finishes our little excursion to the sovereignty of God. Are you convinced that God is absolutely sovereign over everything? I hope so. And I probably, I probably haven't even touched on everything that there is to touch on. Let's move briefly, because we're running out of time, into the doctrine of predestination, which is the, the um, excuse me, there it is, predestination, which is answering the question, what exact purpose is it we can be sure God is working for those who love him? What's the purpose? And in a sense, he answers that question in verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, in order that that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Notice that God knows people, not just facts. Now, why do I say that? because there's a very popular version of the doctrine of predestination and election in American Christianity that says, you of your own free will need to choose God. He never forces himself on you. God is a gentleman, his hands are tied. He couldn't save you if he wanted to. This is the teaching of Jacob Arminius. It's known as Arminianism. Many, many churches in America Teach this, that salvation is up to you. It's your decision. Uh, One famous evangelist said, God's hands are tied. I don't believe that based on the last handout we just saw. But notice that this verse says those whom he foreknew. God foreknew people, not just facts. So the, the, the view that you'll often hear is, Oh, what is the word election? What is predestination? What do those words mean? Because they clearly appear in the Bible. Here they are in this text, not least other places. God knew ahead of time that you of your own will would choose him. And on the strength of God seeing that beforehand, knowing that beforehand, he elected you. So I want to comment on that. First of all, that's not what this verse says. It says he foreknew You, not just the fact that you would believe. Secondly, as we're going to see next week, you have absolutely no ability to believe in of yourself because you're spiritually dead. So the whole paradigm doesn't work if you believe the biblical view of man. Thirdly, if God simply knows ahead of time that you of your own free will are going to believe and choose him, why does he need to do anything he just knows it. That's just passive. We find that the words elect, choose, and predestine are active. He's doing these things. Thank you, God. So I'm going to end on that cheerful note. Um, and we're going to, just, just to, so you can get prepped for next time, if you want to look at it ahead in your handout. You can see here that Appendix 2, page 6, we are going to explore the doctrine of election, just in case you're not clear on it. My goal at the end of next week is for you to be super-duper clear on why the Bible teaches God chose you, he elected you, in spite of you, all for the glory of his amazing grace. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a little time to face-to-face to to say hi. Let me pray. Lord, we want to stand in awe of you, sovereign God, and there is indeed mystery in this. Um, The things we experience that you allow happen, they are hard, they are hurtful, they are painful. We indeed suffer. But our ultimate confidence and comfort in that is we look at your Christ, we look at the Son of God. Who was rejected, smitten, scorned, despised of men, uh, who was treated with utter contempt, who suffered leaving us a pattern to walk in. And so we thank you that our suffering Savior, that none of that was wasted, it was all redemptive. You suffered in order to bring many sons and daughters to yourself. Thank you that you're gathering a family of all tribes and nations. Thank you that you've made us a part of that family. Thank you that anyone in this Zoom call who isn't sure that's them, that is them, can right now call on the name of the Lord assured you will save them. Because you tell us God is not willing that any would perish but all would come to the knowledge of Christ and repent. Grant us these gifts. Cause the eyes of our hearts to see Christ, to find in his righteousness, death, and resurrection all that we need for eternal hope and glory. Thank you that you begun a work in us. You will bring it to completion. Thank you that it is God's work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What a wonderful thing to exist for the good pleasure of God. May we sense that pleasure, and in all that we do think and say, bring more and more glory to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.